Hello and welcome to Nothing Worth Saying. With Extinction Rebellion currently undertaking protests in London, we have decided to do a podcast covering all things climate change. In this episode, we'll be looking into the methods and policies of Extinction Rebellion. Then we'll broaden our focus to climate change in general, looking at what countries are doing and what needs to be done. Lastly, we'll go on to specific policies that are looking to combat the effects of climate change, specifically the Green New Deal. Aside from the usual chaps, we have boosted our diversity and welcomed Marina to the podcast. She studies politics and IR at Bath, and climate change is an issue of importance to her. So let's go on to our first issue of the day. Environmental campaign group Extinction Rebellion have launched a protest which, which has just ended this week. The group demands that the UK must legally commit to reducing carbon emissions to net zero by 2025, a policy that would require radical changes to achieve. So guys, what do we think about Extinction Rebellion? Uh, yeah, so my point of view is basically that um, Extinction Rebellion has provided an important um, pedestal for people to talk about climate change and kind of move the issue to the forefront. I, th- I think I agree with that. I think broadly, most people think that Extinction Rebellion has started a conversation which is positive. I think the problem is that the narrative they're pushing about that conversation is in danger of pushing people away from the movement. It's generating a reaction, isn't it? And that reaction yeah. isn't necessarily a good one because... While there's a lot of people who are saying they are, they are supporting them, and then a lot of people who are saying, well, maybe they're a bit wrong about some of the facts that they're saying, but at the end of the day, it's a good message. There's a lot of people who are just like, they're just totally wrong, and we should not listen to them, and then that kind of like gets the whole com- the positive conversation buried under all this controversy. Uh, yeah, I just think their policies aren't um, they're not realistic. So, for instance, reducing CO two emissions to almost zero in six years' time. I think would require one uh, aeroplane trip every five years. Um, and I just can't see us changing that very quick. They're also planning on replacing uh, gas stoves and all things that we use in that respect, which, considering the vast majority of the country, I think we use gas. Uh, it's just not conducive in six years. Although what I will say is that their goals are aspirational. So it's more like, if you've got this aspirational goal of we should set it at 2026 and then you've got the other alternative that it should be, uh, I think, 2050, then arguably some sort of synthesis where they meet in the middle is a positive. So they're providing the, ba- the, the, the counterbalance to the prevailing view of not climate change deniers. I think climate change optimists are a more dangerous group in terms of combating climate change. It's the people who think there's not that much that we need to do, and climate change isn't that big of a threat. And I think it's more about changing their attitudes, and I guess. But but even then, like, as as you've seen, I don't think it's changing attitudes for the better. Um, a YouGov poll showed that fifty three percent of the public say they are to some degree opposed to the protest, compared to just twenty seven percent in favour. And th- when compared to sixty six percent of Britons naming climate change as the biggest global threat in a recent Pew poll. That shows almost that the group is turning people off. And when you have people like Cadiz and Dick, who met the Met Police uh, chief, saying that the April protest for 7.5 million in a time of police cuts, um, I, I just don't think they're going to get the um, silent majority on board. I think this is the problem. They, they're going across and alienating people in so many ways. And I think this massively stems from them being a decentralised organisation. They've talked about how they don't want to have votes on things. They don't want to stop people from saying certain things or um, talking about certain issues or protesting in certain ways. And I understand why they're doing that. But at the same time, it means that you're going to have public relations problems. 
um, that are really going to turn people off. Well, I, I don't know. If we, we've all seen the Andrew Neil uh, interview with Extinction Rebellion, um, and when they have people like their co-founders saying ninety, well, I think one of their founders or someone involved in the group saying that ninety-seven percent of the um, of the people in the world will die, um, and others saying that billions will die. I just don't see how that's helping them because these facts are so far from reality that it just leads people to think they're a load of crazy or loony um, eco-wise. I think, like you said, Tom, it's because of the problem of decentralization that everybody can contribute whatever ideas they have towards the cause. Um, I think mainly they're centralized because they want it to be an accessible form of democracy for everybody. I think it's so difficult to get across kind of ideas of how important it is for climate change to be a central policy issue. They're making it a kind of a way of saying, well, if you join us, now you can talk about how important it is for you and put pressure on the government. Well, they have received support from key public figures like the Shadow Home Secretary, Diane Abbott. And even just to get her on board with the protest yeah, shows Caroline that... Lucas as well. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it shows that they are getting some movement in Parliament. I, I do think, though, while it's very important that, and like Lena says, about having a decentralised movement, trying to get people involved, there is a slight issue that it does seem to be overwhelmingly white middle class. And that is going to create potential tensions because if you look at populist movements across Europe and indeed elsewhere, there is a anti-climate change sort of uh, spin to them a lot. So, for example, example Donald Trump has stood on a platform of, uh, well, not quite anti-climate change, but he's very much skating the line of what anti-climate change could be. He said it's a Chinese hoax. He said it's Chinese hoax. I think that's pretty anti-climate change. It's it's pretty much like as far as he can go without people saying, oh, you're a climate change denier, and he can say, I have arguments against that. But like genuinely, that uh, the the, uh, Hungarian party, Peace and Justice, have also come out and said that it's sort of overblown the hoax. It's, It's sort of, it allows populists to say uh, the working class are being told this by an elite who are just talking down to them. And I think that that is an issue with Extinction Rebellion because it is overwhelmingly white middle class. Students. Students as well. Like, it is an elite who are saying this to everyone else. And especially also there's a, an aspect of it, the vegetarian movement as well. People already are quite reactionary to that. So well, They have their biggest support amongst 80, 24-year-olds. I think 47% either strongly supported or somewhat supported. Uh, the destruction of traffic and public transport to highlight Extinction Rebellion's aims. And that was in April, so I can't see it mm. changing since then. Mm. I just think that they let themselves down because they're not listening to the scientists they came to want to listen to. Mm. No scientist is saying billions of people will die. In fact, the IPCC has come out and countered that claim. Um, so I think it would help if they, if maybe, yeah, as you were saying, maybe if they were more centralised and had actual figures who were speaking facts about the catastrophe that climate change could be. I think the thing is, though, like the one of the main reasons that the base support is eighteen to twenty four year olds is because that's mainly like that's the group that climate change is going to affect the most. You know, like people who are sixteen, seventy years old, the climate change is not going to affect their lives too much. We'll say they live to eighteen. I also think it's the the times that that age group has grown up in. If you look at younger people, say people of our age or slightly older, they've grown up in. Climate change science has always been the norm and been well accepted. You look at people who are slightly older, and you know it's something that's coming into their lives as they're growing up, so they're naturally more skeptical. They're not the ones. At the end of the day, the interested for most of aren't the ones who are paying the bills and 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is the important part. But it's definitely actually involved in that level. But we're going to be, the, you know, with things like oil shortages and stuff, like that's going to fall on us. That's not going to fall on our parents. And also, I think with that argument, there is a, a rise in ethical consumerism across Europe, for example. So, 10% rise in uh, people making more conscious efforts to, to buy fruit and vegetables and, and, and reduce their meat consumption and things like that. I think we are a generation that is more sort of in tune with what we're buying and understanding the power of our money to also shape policy in that regard. So, I think that. We are a more conscious generation of climate change because of you know documentaries like The Day After Tomorrow and Twenty Twelve and things like that. We've grown up knowing about the problems that we face. We are a post outdoor generation. Yeah. What do you think of the idea that extinction have of the citizens' assembly um, to solve the climate issues? I think it's a fair idea. I think obviously it proves logistical issues, um, but you can look at the case of Ireland, for example, that helped greatly with abortion laws uh, to kind of modernize those so why not apply it for climate change yeah i think it owes good kind of public legitimacy to potentially radical and costly or you know policies that are going to have big changes in population so those those kinds of measures are going to perhaps make them slightly more acceptable to people yeah i guess also it does tackle the issue of the fact that 65 plus year olds only comprise 16 percent of the population so if you're creating a representative group, you are going to have more younger people. It would also address the issue of like elites um, and the mm. working class divide with um, kind of what, wanting to have um, climate change address as a key policy issue, because obviously it would gather people from all kinds of backgrounds. Um, there's also been the argument from Grant Chaps on Question Time, who's basically saying, okay, we acknowledge climate change is an issue, but why are you looking at the UK and uh, not elsewhere. Um, do you think that holds any credence? I think he said we're leading the G20 emissions, mm-hmm. cutting um, out, of, out of all the advanced nations, and we were the first to declare a climate emergency. I think it's really because the founders are English, so it's what they know. It's where they felt was realistic to start. Also, to be fair, um, we should be advocating change in our country because we can't advocate change in other countries very easily. It's hard to create a grass move grassroots movement in another country like it's hard to create a grassroots movement in china like we might as well do as much as we physically can because what's the worst that could happen we offset a greater proportion of our own climate impact versus the rest of the world i think that we may be leading the g20 but if if we can be doing more then that's fantastic i think it's a good time to probably look at climate change in more general i think we've covered extinction quite well So, uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has declared that the burning of fossil fuels, in combination with other human activities, has significantly altered the heat balance of the Earth's atmosphere. This poses serious risks to both human and natural systems across the world, affecting things like crop yields and sea levels. The first major piece of action on climate change came in the Kyoto Protocol of 1997, which pledged to cut the yearly emissions of carbon by varying amounts, averaging 5.2% by 2012 as compared to 1990. This was updated with the Paris Agreement, which has been signed by 197 countries and ratified by 185 as of January 2019. The objective was no less than a binding and universal agreement designed to limit greenhouse gas emissions to levels that would prevent global temperatures from increasing more than 2 degrees Celsius above the temperature benchmark set before the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. So what do you think about our current action on climate change? Is it enough? Does it need to go further? 
I think the, the typical or like the, the majority held view among scientists is that we aren't doing enough. Um, I've seen numerous dates, but I think the numbers people are talking about that we need to get to say net neutral um, carbon emissions is perhaps anywhere from kind of 2040, but you see some that are slightly earlier, some that are slightly later at that, and we aren't at pace to meet that kind of date. Mm-hmm. So I think there's definitely more that we do need to be doing. Our CO2 emissions have been falling for six years now, but 2018 was the smallest decrease of, of those years, and it was a 2.4% reduction, and that signals that like instead of reducing it, could just plateau and then maybe increase again. Yeah. I think also, ultimately, you have to ask the question of what's the worst case scenario if you do do more action than you necessarily need on climate change, and that's that you have a healthier world quicker. It's just the cost versus models, yeah. again, isn't it? Right. Well, again, the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has said that the Paris Agreement doesn't go far enough, and it needs to actually be kept below 1.5 uh, degrees Celsius. And, um, yeah, the 20 warmest years on record have been in the past 22 years. So I think that shows that it's climate change obviously is definitely happening. Um, I think the main issue again is uh, China and the United States. Um, apparently, although we cut emissions in the Kyoto Protocol because China and the US weren't really involved unless the US didn't ratify at all, um, the emissions actually increased <laughs> by more than everyone else cut it, and they currently contribute to forty percent of the global total according to data from the European Commission's Joint Research Centre. And I don't think Trump's policies are helping at all. Um, I don't know if anyone has anything on what yeah, he's doing. So he announced on the 1st of um, June 2017 that he was going to bring America out of the Paris Agreement. The issue is with that, that he couldn't actually do it. He can't leave the Paris Agreement until it's been in for four years. Mm-hmm. So if he, becomes, if he gets re-elected uh, after 2020, he can. Um, take them out but as of now he can't do anything so America's had to attend the meetings um, they've not done anything but bad apparently they've actually been quite not helpful but not invasive also below his level uh, it was something like 152 mayors across yeah. the cities across the US all said that they would commit to the, the Paris Agreement big industries as well big companies I think the Paris Agreement definitely again we've, we've heard it definitely isn't far enough but I find it's lack of um bindingness and the way it sort of balances against countries isn't great. Um, for instance, China, they're meeting the Paris Agreement. However, their emissions still grew by 2.3% in 2018 because it's based on what that, this, basically developing countries yeah. who get allowances and more given. But their, like, their emissions per unit of GDP did fall, yeah. but I guess that's because their economy is growing so quickly, isn't it? So yeah. it's kind of a hard thing to say. <laughs> Yeah. Um. So, if if anyone had to guess what 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 the best country is, Morocco. Uh, it is Morocco. It's Morocco. research. Um. So they're one of only two countries with a plan to reduce its CO two emissions to a level uh, consistent with the one point five degrees Celsius, and their energy strategy calls for generating forty two percent of its electricity production from renewables by twenty twenty. So that's coming up very soon. That's fast. Um. Surprisingly, India doing very well as well so they've already established a goal of generating 40 percent of its power through renewables by 2030 um what do you guys think about the developing versus western um argument for climate change i think putin came out recently about greta thunberg saying that 
does really affect developing countries a lot more and it can cost a lot of money for them to implement it when they're basically just trying I think to that just needs to be moved for foreign aid then, doesn't it? Well, I, I think that it should mirror the problem. So, for example, the Industrial Revolution, it was the wealthiest countries, so like the UK, who bore the burden of the innovation. So it costs a lot more money to invent, test all these new machines, all this different uh, styles of innovation. So, for example, with the new renewable technologies that we need, it should be the developed world pioneering those, developing them, testing them. So we have a fantastic uh, like renewable energy SME culture in the UK, pioneering these inventions, and we should be testing them. The cost should be on the developing on the developed world that can afford this, and then we should make the technology more freely available to the rest of the world. So, for example, the EU, when they have blocked the sale of, of Chinese solar panels in the EU because of dumping legislation, anti-dumping legislation, that is counterproductive because it means that you can no longer buy incredibly cheap and effectively the same uh, solar panels. And I think that in so, it, it sometimes it's just going to be a common good that we should be able to afford the cheapest. Uh, yeah, I think like Turkey, for instance, they're not doing very well, but their aim is to achieve energy self-sufficiency. They don't want to be relying on any other countries, which I think is, in their in their eyes, fair enough. Um, one of the way they're doing that is via coal. I think that's mainly because of the cheapness, perhaps, of coal. So for, for, for that example, from Erdogan's point of view, he, from his narrow mindset, he just wants yeah. to be self-sufficient. Well, you can see the, 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 the example of Kenya, where they've recently introduced a railway, a, a railway between, I think it's Mombasa and uh, Nairobi. And if they were to, and they, they, they aspire to make that uh, entirely renewable, renewably run uh, by, I think it's 2025, but if they were to do that currently, they would use the entire country's energy supply. So they they can't do it because they need to first generate enough electricity to sustainably run their economy and country in general. So it's a question of what do you prioritise? With also the case of, is the public really that invested in um, climate change yet? We've spoken about the 66% who have said it's a global threat. Uh, with the British Social Attitude Survey says that on a scale of 1 to 10, uh, the effects of climate change, one being extremely bad, ten being extremely good. Uh, the majority of the British public put it at 3.5, which isn't that bad. Obviously, it's not going to be as bad as, or likely to be as bad as the extinction people are saying. But I think the extinction rebellion kind of statements have been a reaction to that, have been kind of like, well, you need to panic, even though it might it's not be a reaction. With, it's got to be a reaction with facts, though, because the issue is that when they're coming out with these outlandish statements, it, it just makes people think they're idiots. Mm-hmm. Like, and there's also got to be a thing of the cost of energy as well. Um, more British people are worried about the cost of energy um, increasing than the cost of climate change. And as long as that sort of stays in that sort of way, it's going to be hard to justify an increase in energy cost, perhaps. But then again, you can you can look at the examples of Big Oil, where quite often they do have uh, incubators for renewable energy SMEs. So I know that Shell has one, and I, I think that BP might well have one. And it's just sort of like they're using the funding from the fossil fuels, that you know, the funding from their sale of oil and, and natural gas in order to help grow these SMEs in renewables because it's about they need to understand that 
they haven't got a long-term business model in 30 years, so they need to find how they can switch. Until it is cheaper, it, it will be more of a burden on the poorest in society. The poorest in society are looking to put a meal on the table. Um, and we have the choice in this house, um, renewable, renewables or not, and the renewables was more expensive. For us students, we, we could have gone with that decision. But for someone, a working-class household perhaps, on a zero-hour contract, are they really going to increase their energy costs? Because that is something that's tangible. At the minute, climate change, for some reason, people in the country don't see it as being tangible and related to the UK. And that's shown by 95% of uh, the worst effects of climate change will be in Africa and Asia. You've got to try and convince these people that climate change is a terrible thing and that perhaps, or, and, well, I don't know, hopefully help, help poor people out so they can afford this sort of thing. That's why research and innovation programs are so important. Mm. And it's also such a shame that now with Brexit, the UK is not going to have access to them because the EU has such a strong framework of research and innovation programs mm. that you can access and that are currently working on finding ways to make these kind of resources much more accessible to people who can't normally afford them. Um, yeah, and that, that, is, that is a shame. We, we lose a lot of that. But then there are countries in the EU who are struggling, obviously. Um, I think the most notable example is Germany because while they're putting a lot of money into renewables, because the technology is ready yet, they're still relying on a lot of coal. Yeah, I, I think I, the, the US definitely seem needs to do more. I think they're the key one. And I think now that a recent study has shown that 10% of the like the economy could shrink by 10% due to climate change, that should kick people into action. Because when the economy starts getting affected as well, that's when people care. Yeah, that, that's when the consensus uh, starts to come. Uh, apparently Chevron, Exxon, BP and Citgo each paid half a million for Trump's inauguration. Oh, really? So that um, might explain why he's so anti-climate change. Well, all of his cabinet is. Yeah, well, all for big oil, yeah. The Trump administration has established a climate change review panel tasked with questioning the findings of the country's national climate assessment. And the leader of the, that panel is a climate change denier who has stated that the demonization of carbon dioxide is just like the demonization of the poor Jews under Hitler. Um, interesting. That's an impressive mm. comparison to make. Mm. Is it Dennis Brewer? <laughs> well, let's move on to the policies that are uh, being touted as ways to solve the climate crisis. Um, I know, Joe, you've done uh, quite a bit of work on the Green New Deal. Yeah, the Green New Deal, um, it got rolled out basically within weeks of uh, freshman congressman, uh, or congresswoman, sorry, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, straight away, excuse me? Yeah, and it's been met with a lot of pushback, especially from the Conservatives. Uh, the leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, uh, was very excited to announce the Green New Deal because he basically thinks it's stupid and it will just get destroyed. Um, yeah, he was pushing for a vote. He was like, "Oh, we'll give him a vote on it. Let's vote now." A vote. <laughs> he was like, "You look. I've never seen someone look happier." To be honest, he looked like a kid on Christmas. So the leader of the house, Nancy Pelosi, also has been a bit skeptical of it. But I think that's because she, I mean, she's quite. She's uh, an upper class American Democrat. She's quite elite. She doesn't think she can get elected on it. She can't get elected on it. Yeah, exactly. She's aiming for the. Uh, you know, she's the part of like, well, Joe Biden. You've got to consider, like, the moderates were the ones who won the House of Representatives back yeah. uh, from the Republicans. So, obviously, she's going to prioritise what those moderates think. Is, yeah. 
There's also a huge oil lobbyist on both sides. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and I also think the Green New Deal has a huge PR problem in that it's hugely understood. Yeah. Misunderstood, sorry. Yeah, because it doesn't just combat climate change, it combats inequality in America, essentially. It's well, based off the old New Deal in the fact that it's a new social reform program. So it, as well as covering things like climate change, it also covers the living wage and infrastructure, different like infrastructure, not just like the, it's got the electronic grid as well, but it's also got things like roads, bridges, education is involved in that as well. Um, things, there was a, Bernie Sanders, his proposal that uh, two thirds of college education will be paid for by the state, I think it was about 47 billion he wants to give to each state to help pay for two thirds of a student's uh, college education. Um, so, estimates vary wildly how much it will cost, it's in the trillions. Uh, yeah, I think I think well, the American Action Forum, which is the center right uh, think tank, estimated the cost could be between fifty one and ninety three trillion over the next decade, and they estimate its potential cost as being six hundred thousand pounds per household. Dollars. Uh, dollars. Yeah, sorry. So a little, a little bit better than pounds, slightly better. <laughs> well, I, I don't know the way the pounds going. <laughs> Yeah, so there's some stats here. The current U.S. Uh, energy sources, twenty around 20% is from renewable sources, around 20% is from nuclear, 32% is from natural gas, and 30% is from coal. Uh, obviously, the coal industry's had a bit of a boost from Donald Trump recently, even though it is dying. Um, the Green New Deal aims to make America 100% renewable by 2050, eventually. But the current projection is that, with current trends, that America will be 32% renewable by 2050. That's, with the resources that America has. Right, it's because they're, they're fucking. Yeah, and they, they've suddenly become, they're selling more um, fossil fuels. Yeah, they're an exporter of fossil fuels now, mm-hmm. so they've sort of prioritised that. Um, yeah, so, so what do you guys think of that? Listen to what Joe's just been saying. Do you, th- do you think it's? I think it's important to note that there is a an appetite, a very real appetite in America for the Green New Deal. It does seem that consistently polling is showing that Americans support it, um, or at least the majority of them do. But I think even if there's not the appetite now, we aren't yet in a recession, but it does look like we are headed towards one. And so, if there is a recession in the next sort of few years, if we go into a prolonged recession for like an extended period of time. That's exactly when the New Deal first got in. America needs the infrastructure change. They need the education reform. They need all the reforms that are part of the Green New Deal. And I think, but the problem is, it does require a democratic president, and it does require a democratic president with ambition. So it doesn't, it doesn't require you know a centrist Buttigieg or a Joe Biden, people who talk exclusively about how they need to compromise with Republicans. What it requires is someone like Bernie Sanders, or to an extent Elizabeth Warren, although you've got to question her conviction on some of this, but someone who is a leftist like FDR. I, I think I think with the polling, the polling shows people like the policies. However, we'll see how that translates when they can when they know yeah. the cost. There's there's a, the thing is with it, it, it's that it's it's all there's a lot of policies that a lot of Americans will agree with. But because it's all wrapped up in this whole nice shiny Green New Deal, which has a lot of um, well left wing uh, propaganda, I guess, uh, surrounding it, there's a lot of people who are turned off by it. So even things like you know, like 
high-speed rail and improving the electricity grid, things like that. Like everyone, no one's going to say, I don't want quicker trains or I don't want better power to my home. But when you wrap it up with this whole, like, we're going to make it, you know, 100% renewable in, by 2050, we're going to have Medicare for all, which Poland can vary uh, yeah. in America. Uh, free college education, a lot of people are against that idea. Um, so when you wrap these policies that a lot of people agree with in this one package, people are turned off by it. Oh, and I think that's the issue. I think there's a lot of really good policies in there, but they've massively shot themselves in the foot by the way that they've put it all together and branded it. There's a lot, as, as Joe just said, there's a lot of really widely supported and good policies in there that are also thrown in with a load of kind of half-thought-through policies. And then it's all tied up with them. This is going to be really, really, really expensive. On, on top of it. That is a different. It makes it an easy whack out of the park for yeah. Republican critiques. But it also depends on like where you got that set of funds. I understand it's going to be an expensive deal, but for example, who sponsored? The it's a centre right thing. It's centre right. Got a percentage. However, however, I also assume AOC has said it would cost ten billion, ten trillion, ten tr- sorry, ten trillion over ten years. I think it'll be somewhere between that thing of it. Even a ten trillion, even if it is on the low end of ten trillion, it would be a massive public outlet. I think you could also say how much will the natural disasters cost. Yeah. Well, I've got I've got that here. With defense. Yeah. Apparently, climate change would cost the US about five hundred billion a year in lost economic output, um, and risk trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars of damage to infrastructure. Uh, that's to recent warnings from scientists. The thing is, it's because it's like the old New Deal. It's not just about. It's not. It's going to cost, but it's about stimulating the economy as well because the stimu- the co- economy is kind of slowing, isn't it, in America? And it's all about cr- there's a lot of job creation. But you've got to look at the exact cost. Oh, I think I think course, yeah. if it's ninety three trillion, then that's completely ridiculous. That is a ridiculous amount of money to spend. And pe- people are saying the interest, oh, the interest rates low. It's a good time to borrow. If you try and borrow ninety three trillion, people still give you a low interest rate. And as we've seen, if you have a massive debt. That can cause massive issues to the economy. It's not like the American deficit's getting any smaller. Well, yeah, it's growing on the Trump. But a ninety-three trillion would definitely uh, add to that. <laughs> but then, yeah, as as I said earlier, it is usually framed in what's the U.S. spending on defense. So yeah. I guess. Well, here, for example, the U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan cost the higher estimate is six trillion. Okay, so if, if this thing tanks right, which is a big if. And the lower end of that estimate is fifty-one trillion. So now, if let, now, so if that's not right, and if you look at AOC's thing of ten trillion, and you look at the return on investment of bombing Afghanistan and Iraq and invading them, the return on investment wasn't that high. And if you're looking at the ten trillion, even if it goes up to twenty trillion, you'll probably get a much, much larger return on investment from stimulating the economy, revitalizing education, improving infrastructure, and also making the economy more renewable. Well, again, again as we've as we've said, the ten percent decline in GDP by twenty one hundred. Absolutely. Um, I, I think the policies are very, very good. I like them. It's just whether you can generate enough return for the. I think you'd be much better off slowly implementing the policies. Yeah. Especially, you can pick the you can pick some of the more widely supported ones and chuck in a couple of the less supported ones at a time. If you putting them all together in that one go is not. I think what, what you have to remember is the Green New Deal is a proposal. There's obviously, as you were saying with the Extinction Rebellion, obviously scope for compromise. And I think it's widely, it's widely held view. They're not going to force through all of the policies in the Green New Deal. And, but I think as well it's important that the way they're framing it is going to be 
on election footing, because that's absolutely what a the Green New Deal is. It's a springboard for an election. You've got a proactive, here's what we want to do to improve the economy. And then if the Republicans are standing on a platform of that's bad, then you've got to question whether or not that has the same capital politically in order to like uh, incentivize voters and energize their base. But can you see, can you see voters of the Green New Deal's current state, American voters who are, um, as, as we've seen in the past, they like their tax being low. Can you really, and they've never elected a socialist into public office. They haven't really come close. Um, do you, can you really see the American public in its current state electing this proposal? I'd say the last time that they did, or maybe not a socialist, but pretty close was FDR with the New Deal. And that was quite a fantastic thing for the US economy. So I think that depending on how they're able to frame it, so once you get past the primary stage, if it was a Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump, I think it depending on how he framed it. And with the New Deal, he ha- absolutely has the option, as you said, which maybe he should do, to break it down into a constituent part to then advocate for it. But it's easier to say the Green New Deal is our package. And look at how fantastic this could be for the economy. We were fine. Would, I reckon it would boost the economy. Some of the things I think um, public health care is well overdue. Um, well overdue in America. And, and that is something I think, well, however, even that issue is sparking big debate in America. And that's one of the issues in the Green New Deal. And people calling Bernie Sanders for his policy, which is no way as radical, they're, they're calling him too far left to accede to the presidency. Times off, times change, and as you know, Donald Trump won't be in uh, power forever. Um, I, I just think they they'll need to cut it down to what um, benefits the environment the most, perhaps. And I'll be really interested to see what Warren runs on, because it looks like she's going to win the nomination. She's she's the favourite now. It's a long way to go, but she's the favourite. Well, I think that's a ab- debate for another podcast. I think. Uh, so yeah, thanks everyone for listening. Um, and see you next time.